if it's a bad idea, it's miserable to try and execute. And, and I think that's the reason that a lot of ideas are hard to execute is because they weren't great ideas to start with. So the better quality of an idea we can start with, the better, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, but you know, the, the path will be less rocky to execution if you start with a high quality idea. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. My guest today is Carla Johnson. Carla is a marketing and innovation strategist, author, and speaker. She's traveled the world, inspiring and training thousands how to rethink the work that they do and the impact that they can have. She's written 10 books, 10 books, the most recent of which busts a number of myths about innovation. <laughs> Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. It's um, here in Colorado. It's the first day that doesn't feel like summer. Yeah, I'm in Colorado as well. We should, it's a shame we just can't be sitting across the table from each <laughs> other. But yeah, it's nice to be working into fall after some really hot times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, glad you really could join us, Carla. I'd like to start by asking you to define innovation. You know that I love it when people ask me that question because I think one of the hardest parts about being effective with innovation is that we don't have a common definition of what it actually is or a definition that's actually memorable and understandable. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity out there with it. But I define innovation as the ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. It sounds like a nice, concise, simple answer, but each of those words is pretty important. And I want to just break it down a little bit. So when we talk about a new idea, it doesn't have to be necessarily something that has never, ever been done in this world before. I look at it as in something that could be just new to your industry. So for example, I love to think about the McDonald's drive-through and how they designed it to be much more efficient and to be able to move more traffic through faster. Well, that was actually an idea that they drew inspiration from a Formula One pit stop. So was it a completely new idea? No, but was it new to the fast food industry? Absolutely, so innovative in that way. But just, just having a new idea isn't enough to be successful. And I know that we've seen examples of things like uh, Cheetos making lip balm and Harley Davidson making <laughs> cologne and, and Bix disposable underwear. New ideas, absolutely. But successful, innovative ideas, definitely not. So I move into that, that second criteria of a great idea. And, and to be honest, Paul, great is more subjective. Mm. Depends on you know the, the situation, the culture, and everybody involved in what you're trying to accomplished, but essentially a great idea is what advertising guru David Ogilvy talked about. It's an idea that made you jealous that you didn't think of it yourself. <laughs> you know, it gets, it gets people excited about it. Yeah. But even to have a new and a great idea isn't enough to be innovative. We actually have to have impact. And that's where the word reliable comes in. So a reliable idea is one that makes you money. But if you look at ideas that make money, there's a lot of them, but they're not necessarily innovative. So it's this magic formula of all three and the ability to consistently deliver these kind of ideas 
on a long-term basis, sustainable basis, is what I define as true innovation. Yeah, I, I love the term reliable ideas. I've read so much about great ideas and new ideas, but reliable ideas is somewhat of a new concept for me. And I, I, I really, uh, I really think that gives a great dimension to it. So I'm glad you, uh, you talked about that. And as you wrote, wrote in your most recent book published this year, which I have happily read, if you ask 10 different people to define innovation, you get 20 different responses. <laughs> That's right, because I can't remember their first response, <laughs> yeah. so they have to start all over again. And we have we have people on our you know, li listening in that are on innovation teams, right? And so they work on, they might work on somebody else's idea, and that's for them part of innovation. So I think it's important that we always define that word. So thank you for doing that. Your new book is called Rethink, R-E colon Think. Great name. Where'd you get that from? You know, I, I've been around this working world for a while. And early in my career, we had actual paper memos that people would go around and put into people's physical inboxes. And I mean, I look back now and it's kind of a romantic notion of how to communicate. It was a to, from, and then this little line that said R-E colon. And that meant regarding, so you, it was regarding what was the subject of this memo. So now in our email world, it's the subject line. Yeah. But I, it, for me, I drew inspiration from that old style of regarding what we think about. So R-E colon. So yeah. it came from, I wanted to look at how it is we think about innovation. So it just turned into something that had a, a double meaning, like regarding the way we think about innovation and then shortening it into that RE colon think innovation. A neat idea there. And the word think. Exactly. Being, being in there, right? We forget about the thinking part of it. You talk about in your things that you do, is speeches in your books and all, perpetual innovators. What is that? And that really comes back from that idea of the ability to consistently deliver the ideas, the new great reliable ideas that, that have an impact. And when you look at people or teams or companies that are able to consistently deliver these kind of ideas that have an impact and, and are innovating the work that they do at whatever level, it starts to create this sort of flywheel effect. And it's almost like innovation in perpetual motion. So people who think like this, behave like this, this way of thinking is habitual. Mm. And they do just like, just like you think about somebody who's a perpetual painter or a, you know, right. a, a perpetual athlete, like whatever situation they go into, they perpetually behave in that way. And that's what I've noticed about the, the hundreds of people who I researched, actually thousands if I go back to, you know, all the research that I looked at and, and the people that they researched. The thousands of people is that they are in this space or this habit of always being in that perpetually innovative mm. mindset. Yeah. And, it and it doesn't matter what their job title is, their role, their, their definition. It's, it's who they are as a person, whether they identify as that or not. It's just a natural way that they've learned to work in the world and, and approach the work that they do. Is this something that anybody could get to? Anybody could, is it something you can develop? Is it like a, a muscle that you can train? Is it, is it, is there a way to, can anybody do it or is it still only select few? The common stereotype of innovation is that there are people who are the innovators and then there's the rest of the world. Right. 
And that was one of the questions that I wanted to answer when I researched this book is whether or not they're the ability to consistently come up with these new great and reliable ideas that have an impact is something that can be learned. And it turns out that it is and in a really interesting aspect that I came across when I was doing research is that as kids were born and wired to be this way. There was some research that was done in the, in the 1960s that showed that at five years old, kids register at the genius level of creativity, 98% yeah. of them. But then you move ahead, they go through the educational system, college, and then into the work world. And by the time they're adults, the average number of adults that are registering as creative genius is only 2%. So while, while this is a process that can be taught about how to take inspiration from the world around you, make sense of it related into the work that we do and use that to generate ideas and, and pitch them to get approval and buy-in, part of this is re-remembering how we think naturally as kids, mm -hmm. but it's been taught and rewarded out of us through the years of education and just a corporate environment. It's kind of sad, but, but the good <laughs> news is you can get back to it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think a, a fascinating thing is when I watch people go through my process is that literally just a couple of days of 15 minutes of maybe a focused mindfulness meditation, um, observing the world around them, it begins to wake up those muscles or those connections in their brain. And a lot of this really does come back super quickly right away. Good. That's great. There's hope for all of us. Out <laughs> exactly. <there>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cause I always position myself as struggling to come up with ideas, but boy, if somebody has one, I sure can make it a reality, right? Yeah, that's always been my go. strength. But yeah. How do you come up with those ideas? And I always admire those who do. And, and, and maybe there's ways that I can as well. And I think one of the things that we have again, as a, as a perception of innovation, is that we say, well, coming up with the ideas is the easy part. It's executing them. That's the hard part. Yeah. But and, right. and you've probably seen this. If it's a bad idea, it's miserable to try and execute. And, and I yeah. think that's the reason that a lot of ideas are hard to execute is because they weren't great ideas to start with. So the better quality of an idea we can start with, the better I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, right. but you know, yeah. the, the path will be less rocky to execution sure. if you start with a high quality idea. I think that's, that's, that's a good, you know, there's always quotes thrown out. So-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. We never know if they really said it, Exactly. but somebody, was it Einstein? Was it Edison? Some, I think it was Edison. He said that innovation is what? 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And, I, <laughs> and, and absolutely. And, and I think, I think it's also that we don't realize how many small iterative ideas we still have, even during the execution part yeah. of our original idea that we still need to be innovative about. And I, and I would guess you're a much higher quality or a much more prolific innovator than you probably give yourself credit for. Yeah. You just don't recognize all those little situations where you have to come up with ideas and you do it. Well, I like the idea of moving some of that perspiration out of the implementation effort and into the ideation phase, which is kind of what you've been discovering, right? You've come up with a process. Uh, exactly. Uh, describe that process for us. The five I call steps. It, yeah. I call it the perpetual innovation process. We're talking mm. about, you know, perpetual motion and perpetual innovation a few minutes ago, but 
What I looked at is when I interviewed the people who I held up as amazing and consistent and prolific innovators, one of the things that I saw is that it's something they continually do. It's not the one hit wonders of great ideas. It's a consistent, reliable performance from them for decades. Yeah. And if it's a, if it's a company that has a culture of innovation, you know, sometimes that's for centuries depending on you know what they're like and the culture that they have. And when I tried to break down this process, I would find something that a person or a team or a company had done that I thought was absolutely spectacular. And then I would find somebody to talk to an interviewer or research into it. And essentially I would start out by saying, where did you get the inspiration for this amazing idea? And, you know, like all of us would say, I don't know, I was in the shower, I was out for a run, you know, maybe had a few drinks and it just came to me kind of thing. And a lot of the, a lot of great ideas can feel like divine inspiration or, or lightning in a bottle. Yeah. But when I took a different approach to the question and I would say, this was an amazing idea. What were you doing right before this? They could take that next immediate step in reverse. Mm but they couldn't take the 10 or 20 or 50 to go from the idea clear back to inspiration. So I found that by reverse engineering the people I was interviewing and walking them backward through the process, when I looked at everybody's experience, they all followed the same process, whether they realized it or not. And I think that was, that was really fascinating. So when I would go back to some of the first people who I interviewed and I said, I have a theory. Can you tell me if it feels true for you and your experience? Mm. And then I would tell them the process and say, you know, is that, you know, does that sound like the process you followed? And they said, actually, it's exactly it. And they could tell me exactly from the beginning what happened right down to the idea. Wow. And how they shared it. Uh -huh. And the process that they follow is number one, they observe the world around them great innovators, great idea people, great creative thinkers are highly observant, mm. very mindful. They notice the smallest little details. It's kind of like if you have kids and you're trying to walk someplace in a hurry, they notice everything. They notice yeah, the ants, right. they notice the great, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't hurry curious. I'll say that, you know, and, and you can't hurry observation either. Yeah. And they're, excellent at understanding that in order to get to fantastic ideas that have an extraordinary impact and outcome, you have to slow down enough and start to observe the world around you. Now, sometimes it means sitting at a coffee shop, like I've done plenty of times, or a library or a mall and just looking at what goes around. For me, I'm an avid traveler and to just sit someplace new that I've never been in the world and just watch how people interact Watch how the wait staff comes and serves you. Watch how, you know, food's prepared. Watch all these things. It's absolutely fascinating. Wow. wow. So, that's, so that's the first step is just really be more observant to the world in which we live. Now, the second thing is looking at, looking at all of these observations. And, and when we talk about great ideas, a lot of it is about connecting the dots. So I call the, the observations are the dots. And now we're going to distill these into patterns. And when we look at distilling them, we're looking at just commonalities and there doesn't have to be any set category theme in anything. It's just, mm -hmm. as you look at these groupings of things, what's the, what's the pattern that you see? 
you know, sometimes it's about people. Sometimes it's about tall things. Sometimes it's about stinky things. Sometimes it's about loud things. You know, there Mm. is no rhyme or reason. It's just truly as a person goes through this process, what pops into their head. And this is something, especially these first two steps that is genetically wired into us as people. We, you know, back in when we were living on the Savannah, we had to be highly observant of the environment around us because that meant life or death. And from the observations, we had to figure out the patterns because it was the patterns that had meaning. And that's how our brain is wired to, to interact with the world. I think your point that, that kids observe everything just, I mean, it makes it, it's a fact, right? I mean, kids right? do see everything. And, and I, <laughs> I'm hopeful because observation is something I think we can learn to get back to. Mm-hmm. It's probably, there's mental exercises, there's discipline, there's, you know. Putting down your phone. <laughs> there you go. That's a big yeah. one. Yep. Yeah. That's a good one. And then, and then distilling again, that's something that we can learn to do, or there's, there's a, you can do that, right? If you just think, okay, that's what I got to do. Yeah. And from a right. neuroscience perspective, your brain is wired to naturally do this. Yeah. Again, yeah. we've been taught and rewarded out of it. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. What, what happens after that? After that. So then we get to the relate step and the relate step really is the magic that makes this all happen. So even if a person is highly observant, they're great at distilling this into patterns unless they understand how to literally relate it into the work that they're doing. If they have an idea that comes from inspiration, it can feel disjointed. It can feel like a copy and paste situation. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't, it's not successful. And I think that's where you get the ideas like the Cheetos lip balm, uh, (laughs) you know, those, those quirky kind of things that, you know, probably were, came from an observation someplace, but it's the relate step that goes from this theoretical world of observing and finding patterns and start to transition it into the reality of what's the work that I do and what am I really trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at relate and we've observed, we've distilled it into patterns, maybe one of the patterns is tall things. As we look to relate this into the work that we do, an example could be, how could we start to elevate our brand above the competition? You know, how could we start to elevate our customer experience? How could we start to elevate the way people feel every day when they come to work? It's really as simple as that. And mm. what trips up a lot of people is that they want to make it complex. And there really is a a thing called the complexity bias, where we think that if something is simple, it's not as good as something that's very complex. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, some of the the best ideas I've seen are the simplest ones, right? Absolutely. Oh, I would have never thought about that. (laughs) It's too simple. We we discount it. We discount it, yeah. Yeah. And And then from relate, then we start the fourth step, generate, from a completely different mindset. Mm-hmm. And I know you've seen this, Paul, in your work with innovation. A lot of times what happens is that groups get together, Zoom calls inside a conference room or whatever it might be, and they say, here's our situation. We need ideas. You know, Let's get right. them going. Let's brainstorm. Let's just go. And it's like trying to go from zero to 100 yeah. without, without warming up, without context, without anything like that. Yeah. And people can only do so much. 
Right. And again, if there's no inspiration for new ideas, a lot of the ideas that come out of these type of work sessions are essentially the same ideas that are always thrown out. They're maybe just dressed up a little different, mm -hmm. a little different timeline, you know, what, whatever that might be. They're copycat ideas or they aren't really truly inspired at all. Yeah. And then you get to, to pitch them to get budget support, client approval, or whatever it might be. And you hear no. And, and people are like, see, this innovation <laughs> stuff is a bunch of crap, you know, or you have to be an expert. Right. It's just that we weren't, we weren't really innovating. You know, I'm not a design thinker. I'm not a yeah. data analyst. I'm not a whatever that fill in the blank is. But when you can come from a place of inspiration, connect those dots into your idea, by the time you get to the fifth step, which is pitch, you're truly telling the story of an inspired idea. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happens when you get to the pitch is that you are starting out with something that has already been successful. And now you're telling the story of how that connects to your own situation. So by default, when you've, when you've started with something that's already successful, it de-risks that new idea right. in the mind of the person you're trying to get approval from. And, mm -hmm. and, and we know risk is a big part, you know, fear of failure and fear of risking things. It's a big part of why people don't stick their neck out and share the great ideas that they do have inside of them. Yeah. And I've been at so many sessions that start at Generate. You're absolutely right. A and not having that background of observe to still relate, yeah, something really missing if you haven't yeah. gone through that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you hear things like, no, that's not how we do things around here. We don't sell that kind of product. We don't right. have the budget. Yeah. We, you know, all, all, all of the, the things that, that suck the soul out of people and make them say, I'm just yeah. gonna go back to my desk and I'm gonna keep my head down and I'm yeah. gonna do the same thing tomorrow that I did yesterday. And yeah, just like telling a five-year-old, no, you can't do that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you, can't, you can't fly to outer space, right? Yep. <laughs> Not possible. <laughs> yeah. And then does it loop around again? Is this like a, you talked about a flywheel or a continual process. Exactly. So, so you pitch the idea and you work through the feedback you know, whatever happens next, sometimes it comes around in circles on itself where you have to observe and go through the process in order to iterate the idea to make it better. Sometimes it works and you move it into that execution phase. And so you start all over again. And, and mm -hmm. what I found with people who understand this process is that when they get to the pitch step, they understand that feedback is a key part of making an idea successful. So typically when somebody pitches an idea, it's, I call it the gladiator effect. It either gets the thumbs up or a thumbs down, you know, it lives or it dies. But when we look at how people give feedback for ideas, that's a, that's a big important point mm -hmm. that is rarely ever talked about. So feedback, I look at feedback in two ways is that when somebody presents an idea, pitches an idea, the first thing that you talk about is what did I like? And I think the very fact that someone had the initiative and the courage to come to you with a new idea is something to be recognized. Mm -hmm. Because many times I'll hear executives or team leads say, I, I never get any ideas. Like my team never comes to me. And I'm going to chastise them a bit because if that's the case, it's your own fault and you're creating mm. that situation. One is because you're not recognizing, again, the very courage and initiative it takes to come forward with an idea. Yeah. And the second one is saying what I wish. 
because when people do come forward with an idea, a lot of times of what, what happens is that the person gets crushed because, yeah. because that's how the feedback is designed. Absolutely. It's like, oh, positives and negatives, you know, blacks and white. But right. when, when you can say what I wish, what it does is it helps open up the mind and thinking of both people to look at the idea rather than the person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I wish is, you know, what was it about the idea that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out? What would, what do you wish you could see that isn't there? Yeah. Gotcha. And it's, it's a different way of, of holding up and supporting the person who stepped forward. Incredible amount of psychology in here, right? I mean, right, it's, yeah. you're trying to get people recognizing the courage Somebody had a lot. It is a lot of courage to, to pitch an idea. There's no doubt about it, whether yeah. you're pitching it to a friend or you're pitching to a vice president or whatever. It's it's different levels, there, maybe. There, but, you're always yeah. at a yes, certain level of vulnerability because nobody yeah. wants to feel that they're dumb or stupid or they right. shouldn't have done something. And, yeah. and that's an yeah. important part of the process, too. Yeah. You mentioned that, uh, you know, you mentioned that some companies are known as those companies have lots of great ideas and some people are known, right? Those people have. So, so the difference between companies and people, how do you, how do you put those together? I look at companies that truly are, that we hold up as, you know, that innovation icons, you know, the right. Apple, the Netflix, the, the Amazons, the Zappos, the Legos. And one of the yeah. things that they're so great about is looking at innovation as something that's everybody's business. While they may have specific groups who that is their all day, every day focus, whether it's product development or a traditional innovation group, they understand that to truly reach their potential, not just as an innovative company, but in the terms of growth, market share, all of these things that are really important in business, they have to make sure that the other 90% of the employee population that doesn't have innovation specifically as their day-to-day -day job is thinking innovatively. Because yeah. again, it's about consistently coming up with new, great and reliable ideas. That is not something that should be isolated to one part of the business. In fact, I found that 90% of innovation happens outside of that traditional innovation, R&D, product right. development group. But a lot of times yeah. we, we think of innovation only as the product or the software or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's really good. It is it is uh, a, a great way to bring it together. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Ferrari's F1, the wow. Formula One, the plant and the people who make that. That's what they do. Uh, you'd say, well, how much innovation is there in that? I will tell you a tremendous amount of innovation. And it's so baked into everything they do. When you park your car there, you have to back in. Nobody's allowed to pull head into a parking spot. Why? It's about speed. It's about moving fast. When you walk through their facility, it's the cleanest place you could eat off the floors of the where they're uh, building their cars. You know, and it's just there's so much driving innovation in a place like that. It is, and I've had people who are the heads of innovation groups come to me and say, "Thank you." For saying like everybody needs to take part of this because the expectation, even of companies yes. that want to be innovative, they're still turning to that 10%. Right. And these heads of innovation and their teams are saying, our shoulders are only so broad. Right. We can't yeah. solve everything. And, and your example with Ferrari is brilliant. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the people in every corner of the business who are Absolutely. highly observant. 
who understand those patterns, relate it to their work, have the ideas, pitch them, and that's why it's so spectacular at every interaction. Yeah, it was amazing. You could just feel it in every, you know, just everywhere. It was so cool. What I love about your book is not only do you cover those five steps, but you you give great examples, real examples. This is not something that you made up. Clearly, you've done a lot of research, and and the examples are, are just I just found them to be really helpful in understanding the concepts. How did you get into this? You know, it's I I think it found me <laughs> more than I found it, and I think that that you're probably the same way. Like if you're naturally wired to this and this matters to you, you're going to fight against the inertia. Mm. And I've always been the problem person in a meeting. I'll say uh-huh. that, you know, the, the one who's never, who's always going, no, I, yeah, I think we can do better than that. I can. And people in the media are going, my God, just like, stop, like, let's just move on. And that's when we were talking about like the culture of a company a few minutes ago, it's, it's really the companies who understood the culture. If they want an innovative culture, they have to reverse engineer it down to the people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I, I looked at and I have an assessment about what kind of innovative thinker people are. And I know you're a, I'm a strategist strategist and I'm a provocateur and that works perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. When you were talking about you, you think that you're more of the execution side rather than the idea person, that's just how you come to ideas. It doesn't mean either's right or wrong. Right. I'm I'm the provocateur who's always pushing that status quo. Yeah. So talk about those archetypes. That's the last part of the, the kind of the piece here that we haven't discussed yet. You've identified these archetypes, right? Exactly. Six different archetypes. And why I pursued this is because if companies are going to be innovative, they have to reverse engineer it down to the individual level because it's people who make teams and it's team performance ultimately determines a company's performance. And when I had looked at other assessments around innovation or even things like DISC and Myers-Briggs and things like that, one of the, I found two challenges. One is that people couldn't remember them. <laughs> I, I always say, yeah. It's the the one with the E F P T J whatever. I'm the one that's extroverted, opinionated, and I go by how I feel. But to t- I could I can't remember those numbers right. or letters, much less put me on a team where everybody else has something else. I'm like, I have like let's just go have some beers and let's figure out how we get along because this does nothing for me. You know, so there's the personality types, but again, they're hard to do anything and learn from if you can't remember them. Right. And, and the second thing that I saw when it got more specific to innovation is that people looked at how people performed in the process of innovation. And I believe people need ideas at every touch point in everything that they do. It's not like, oh, now we're generating ideas. So now we need idea people. So those kind of people are involved. And then as we move it down the line, like these kind of people are involved and, you know, and so forth. People need to understand how they bring ideas to the table all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. how I was able to, to research and come up with the six archetypes that I found. And the archetypes are a strategist like you. You're excellent naturally at planning and execution. There's the collaborator who's wonderful at integrating people, teams, ideas. There's the culture shaper 
And we think of those as the storytellers, the people who can really yeah. craft a narrative around an idea and, and get people, you know, the emotional side of, of people, which works well then with the fourth one, the psychologist, who's all about empathy. You know, what's it like to be the consumer of this idea, you know, yeah. in, in whatever capacity. And then we have the orchestrator and they're the people who lead fearlessly. They are excellent early in the process that having those difficult conversations that maybe the other five of us like to put off, you know, uh -huh. till later, but, but there's a lot of negative things that can happen when we don't address things early on. They, they really understand the, the political stepping stones and ins yeah. and outs when it comes mm -hmm. to innovation. And then the last one is the provocateur, somebody who's always challenging the status quo. So you can see that w with all of these, you need them all, but maybe in different balances and in different ways, but you need right. them all during the process. And it's not something because they're archetypes. This is how people naturally show up in the world. And what happens is that if you put people into a job with a you know, job description about innovation or a job title or a role about innovation, they're expected to behave in a specific way while doing that job. But an archetype is how you naturally show up in the world. And it's why we say things like, well, let's go ask Paul because, you know, Paul is great at strategy. People will always identify you in that way because mm -hmm. it's how you naturally show up in the world. Right, so we can right. put you in a super creative, chaotic, whatever kind of environment, and you're naturally going to be able to organize, plan, and, and create a strategy, you know, create yeah. a path. You can put me in the most organized, planned environment ever, and I'm always going to go, I know you got that set, but here's an idea. <laughs> you know, it's just, these are yeah, just things right. we can't, we can't yeah. bottle up. It's who, yeah. And it's who we are. <laughs> exactly. And so it's, it's not about being right or wrong, but it's understanding the balance yeah. and the dynamics. So sometimes, and uh, I, I do work with a, a lot of marketing teams, a lot of chief marketing officers and executives and HR people in very left brain engineering driven kind of companies, it's filled with strategists and they can't figure out why can't we get anything that's more energetic, that's more, you know, pushes the boundaries a little bit more. Like, why can't we make that happen? Well, it's because their entire marketing or HR team, they've hired them to also be strategists yeah. and they don't understand that in order to get something different, you need to bring other people to the table that's it. that yeah. have that different perspective. Yeah. Your website has this assessment on it. Anybody could go it there. Does. I Absolutely. went there. I Boy, I encourage every listener to go check that out. The questions that you ask, it instantly told me that there's a lot of depth in here. This is not a made up, light, skim across the top type of analysis. This is, there's real depth in here. So I, I commend you for that. Again, it's, it's, it's five or six questions that's, that are deceivingly simple. Yeah. Yeah. But when you get to the outcomes, you understand how much can can come out right. of the simplicity yeah. of the questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate Carly you spending time dropping in to say say hello to us. You do a lot more than write write the books. I mean, I, I read the book here. Uh, that was my introduction to to what you do. But bringing you into companies, uh, you know, it's just uh, you can tell just by talking to you, you have so much to add. And I really appreciate you coming by. I encourage our leaders to uh, to really reach out to you and 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 find out more. Absolutely. And, and I, I love to work with executives, with teams on really looking at how do you build a culture that's more open and welcoming to innovative thinking, creative problem solving. How do you truly instill that? into the culture of, of what you do in a way that makes it natural 
not something that's, oh, now we have to do innovation too, kind of thing. You know, to, because yeah. a, a lot of times with innovative and, and cre- creative thinking, what we start to realize is we don't, we shouldn't be doing all the things that we have on our plate. Right. Let's start to look at the work that we do yeah. and the impact that it has. And maybe we can do some things different and maybe not do some of the things that we've been doing and have better results. Yeah. So if people want to find out more, uh, you know, how can they follow you? How can they find out more? The best place to start is my website. It's Carla with a C Johnson, carlajohnson.co. There's no M. I say it's .co for the great state of Colorado where you and I both live. <laughs> and then on there, like you said, on, on my homepage, you can scroll down a little bit and there is the assessment so you can find yeah. out what your innovation archetype is. Mm-hmm. I also have a weekly newsletter that comes out to my subscribers every Tuesday and it's information my subscribers get that nobody else does. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I, I also from time to time share new tools, new research, especially around the archetypes. And right now I'm working on some very fun things about the archetypes and strategic planning for 2022, Ooh, because I know nice. that's, that's what's on everybody's mind yeah. right now and, and how to look at that from a different frame of mind. Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn, Carla Johnson. I'm on Twitter at Carla Johnson. And I post more creative things on my Instagram account and that's carlajohnson.co. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we have links to those in the show notes so everybody can click there and find out. Carly, this was fantastic. I I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for joining us. I hope maybe we can come back again when you have some more, uh, some update for us on on new things you found. Yeah, that would be great. I'm digging in and really working with some teams on their archetypes and how how to understand them and improve alignment and performance, which is just, I I love to do because I find it fascinating. So it'd be be fun to come back and and talk to you about that. Let's do it. All right, sounds good. All right, Carly, you have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. You bet. And to all our listeners, thanks for joining us. We're really uh, glad you could listen in and we'll see you next week. Everybody have a good week between now and then. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com. <laughs>